You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. A decade ago, Sarah Ghazali escaped Saudi Arabia, leaving behind a life where her every move was monitored and controlled. She acquired refugee status while in Mexico based on her sex, and her application set a precedent in Latin America UNHCR case law. She is now living in Vancouver and hasn't had contact with any of her family members since she left. Sarah is an MA graduate student in the Gender, Race, Sexuality, and Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia and worked at the UN Refugee Agency in Mexico, as well as with the Women's Economic Council, and was a senior counselor for the Syrian Refugee Project in Canada. I spoke with her over the phone from her home in Vancouver. Here is that interview. So first I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your background? Where did you come from? And how and why did you end up in Vancouver? Oh, that's a very interesting long story. So um, I come from Saudi Arabia. Um, I come from I was born in the in the center or the heart of Saudi Arabia. And women rights, let's say from the social perspective, are not equal across the Arabian Peninsula. Because the, the the center is considered the most conservative region in Saudi Arabia. That being said, not only that I was born in a very conservative environment, um, my family was would rank high in their in their uh, you know the way they, they view uh, women's rights. And my family is um, um, is respected, I would say. Uh, you know, because because most of my family um, they come from a religious background. So my let's say my my uh, for example my grandfather, my uncle, um, actually uncles, not my only one. Um, all of them are imams. And just to translate that, imam means like a priest or a rabbi. So so I come from a very conservative background. I think like any girl there, um, as you grow up, you realize that you have many obligations, mostly tied to men. So, for example, you would stay home and you have to serve food. And um, that is because boys, they can go out and, well, they, they, have, they have to receive the food and they have, they're the ones who actually judge it. So it's, everything is di- divided around the gender line. And in a way, it's kind of devised to, to make you invisible. So you should be quiet, you should be coy, you should be fragile, while boys should be, uh, well, courageous, and they have to be out there, and they, they can be boisterous. So for me, I think as long as, like, um, or as well as, as uh, many other uh, women there, initially, you accept it, because this is kind of the reality that, that you know, right? There is no point of comparison. But as you grow up, you, you start to questioning why the universe should be divided, let's say, across, across the, the gender line. I questioned it, and my friends did. And that's like uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And I'm sure that many women in Saudi as well, they, they question it, even if they do not discuss it openly. 
So the thing is, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense that men have control over your life or making decisions on your behalf. Because um, this has to do with, with the guardianship law in Saudi Arabia, which gives them or grant them the right to rule over women and control their, their whole life. But particularly, uh, it's problematic because it controls their mobility. And, well, if you control women's movement, you, you control everything that she can access outside home. Yeah. Essentially, you control her life. And just to illustrate what the guardianship actually means, it means that a male relative who must be your father or brother or husband or could be even your son. So you would see, uh, or, or is it, it is okay for, let's say, I'm, I'm a woman who is uh, 60 years old to, she, will, she might have a, a guardian who is her son who is likely 20 years old or less. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's absurd. So, I think I think it's it is it is questionable because you know some men are not intellectually or emotionally mature to make uh, good decisions for themselves, let alone be guardian of another human being. Mm-hmm. Right. So you would you would question this reality, and the issue is when you are not lucky and you're under the guardianship of a person who is not of a sound mind, who is abusive, who is controlling, and, you know, that um, everything is, is limited or um, uh, problematic for you. And the response that you get from, from the society is that either it is, it is your fault, like you made this person angry, or they would ask you to be patient and uh, wait from... from for some sort of a, a divine intervention to resolve the situation. Or let's say that, okay, they would tell you that you might try your luck again and try to find another guardian. That means another husband. Or maybe you wait for your son to grow up and be your guardian. And this, this is interesting because this is actually what happened to my um, grandma. My grandfather was very abusive. And um, he, he, he was re- really tough with her. So the moment that her first son got married, actually she, she waited till like the next, the second night of, of his wedding to move out with him. So she lived, she lived with him almost all her uh, life. She did not, um, not almost all her life. I mean, from the point of, of marriage, she, she, she moved out with him, right? With for her the rest son. Of her, yeah, for the rest of her life till she died. Uh, because she could not move to live alone. She moved from her husband's house to her son's house. Those were her, her alternatives. The thing about guardianship is that they tell you that it is, it is a religious ba- religion-based and it, it will work as a general rule and that um, there is some sort of a, a divine wisdom behind it. But in reality, I think the guardianship is not based on, on religion or in Islam because many feminists um, dispute the guardianship as a sort of a medieval rule. In their perspective, you know, the, the Quran repeatedly states that we're all equal in front of, of God, that we all have a free will. So therefore, men and women should have equal rights and equal free will. I'm sharing this point, you know, because I know, or I don't want uh, the listeners to 
jump to the conclusion and think that uh, the Saudi patriarchal mindset is representative of the 1.3 billion Muslims across the world, because it definitely is not. I think I, I also want to emphasize that you cannot use Islam to justify guardianship, particularly in the context of Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia does not necessarily really apply um, Islam all the time, right? The law in Saudi is, is very, very arbitrary. It depends on the whims of the monarch. Can you explain the ideology behind guardianship? Like, how is it, how is it justified? They use, again, they use the, a certain verse of the Quran to say that that actually can be translated into so many different ways. It doesn't mean necessarily guardianship. Um, for, for Islam, like the, the word the word guardian, um, it's hard for me to translate it because it's in Arabic, but, but the, that word it could be translated to uh, a person who takes care of you, a person who is uh, protecting you, a person who is paying money for you. It can be translated to so, so many ways. But I, I think because of the patriarchal m mindset, it has only one meaning. Uh, they uh, interpret it as uh, a point, uh, as something that is used to control, not to protect, not to provide. Uh, it's it's uh, interpreted in 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 the most restrictive manner that that benefits them. And is it like is it based on the idea that, for example, women are not capable of taking care of themselves, or that they're somehow like children, or is it simply that? You know, there's a there's this overriding belief that men own women. Yeah, yeah, that, that's is, that is the the general sense that they um, or the general meaning that they get from that first. But th this is basically their interpretation. I'll, I'll give you I'll, I'll give you an, an an example. In that same verse, it says that if they do not obey you, uh, then it gives it gives a couple of choices. Uh, admonish them. Uh, do not sleep with them and beat them. That's the last interpretation. Uh, the the thing with that verse, which is this is the in, in the feminist uh, Islamic feminist thought is quite problematic or like it's highly debated because it doesn't necessarily mean what it, what it's it's saying exactly like in, in terms of beating. I'll I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Um, Admonish is is okay clear. Um, when it says do not sleep with them, in the, the, the interpreters in the, in the you know, medieval era, they said, well, uh, it doesn't mean that you cannot have sex with them. You can have sex with them, but you don't have to sleep, meaning spend the night sleeping with them. Mm. So it is very selective in its understanding. It comes from a very a male-centered perspective, okay? The word beat in, in, because the Quran is written in Arabic, the word beat in Arabic, in, in Arabic also means to walk away to distance, right? It doesn't mean necessarily one, that single meaning, but they chose to interpret it like that. Hmm. And that's, that's the point of that, uh, that the Islamic feminists are, are presenting, that in order to, have a, um, a clear understanding of the text, 
you have to put it, you have to address how the language, how the complexity of the language itself, you have to, uh, different ways of, of uh, uh, or perspectives in the interpretation. And to, they emphasize that if it's, if it's uh, universal, then why should we stick to a medieval interpretation of it? I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your experience growing up in Saudi Arabia and specifically what led you to leave? Well, I kind of touched um, on why I, I uh, or the way I was growing up. Um, there's nothing really particularly unique in my childhood. It's, it's, it's pretty much like uh, the rest of the girls there. I went to school. I received education. Definitely my freedom of movement was constricted. Um, I always needed permission from a male uh, guardian to either give me a ride, you know, to go where I, I want or um, allow me to go with a driver to somewhere else, right? But basically my movement is between the house and the school. When I go out, I uh, would be covered from head to toe. Um, again, my family is quite religious, so I covered my face. I was I was even wearing like gloves. I I I, I, I was not supposed to show quote unquote flesh because you don't want to tempt men, right? And that what you wore wasn't called. It wasn't a burqa. What was it that you wore? Um, it's just face cover. There's no word specific to to call. It's just a face cover. Okay. Funny thing is, when anything won't happen, when um, I'll give you an example. When once uh, when I was uh, going shopping, I was going with my sister. Uh, you should not ever be alone with uh, with a man, or you should not you should not be uh, traveling alone. Okay, that's that's a general rule there. So when I was once uh, in a store, uh, my sister just walked a little bit out because I was I was about to pay and leave. So there's this guy who came across and he dropped his number. He was like flirting with me. He dropped his number in my bag, in my um, shopping bag. And so what I did naturally is like I grabbed his number and I, I threw it away. Right? I don't want anything from this guy. I don't want to be you know, associated with him. So I, I walked out and immediately at the time there was religious police. So religious police approached me. And asked me, asked to check my stuff. And I didn't know what's going on. So he checked my stuff. Uh, then he said, the guy, the, the shop owner, reported that the other guy, you know, this man who did so and so. So uh, I told him, well, did he tell you, um, you know, who is the other, that person who was uh, harassing me? It will make more sense to identify the guy, then come to me, right? Basically, because first, I'm covered. I'm, I'm covered from head to toe. Second, because it, it's much easier to identify this guy than come to me. And he seen me. He, he, he saw me dropping, uh, getting rid of the number. Mm. Uh, the point I'm driving to here is that when things go wrong, whatever that is, they will come to, to the woman. They will blame women immediately. Because they, they, they let, or they seduced men, or they allowed the situation to escalate because they were not, for example, dressed properly or did not respond properly. So 
going back to my story and and why I left, I've seen I've seen so much of uh, injustice towards women there, and I did not want to grow there or, or like spend the rest of my life there. I did not want to want to be under the control of uh, another person. Uh, I'm a human being. I'm not a possession, and I thought that I either leave Saudi Arabia or die trying. Honestly, and I plan to escape. I. I tried a couple of times. I failed. I managed to escape around maybe 2008. Around that time, I did not have identity documents um, because almost 10 years ago, women were not given IDs. Now they can. Uh, Still, women face lots of hardship getting identity documents because of the guardianship law. Does she need permission to get an identification document, like from the guardian? You need access. You need access. You need to leave home, mm. right? You cannot do that without your guardian saying yes, right. right? So, as I said, like if you control women movement, you control everything. Mm-hmm. So, I think it took me a while to kind of muster enough courage to apply for a refugee status. Uh, I was in Mexico then. I was really afraid of being returned to Saudi Arabia. Can I ask how you made it to Mexico without identification documents? I was smuggled. I paid lots of money. My my family is um, well-to-do, let's say. So I paid lots of money to to leave. And that's that's if you're thinking of freedom of mobility across the, or through an intersectional lens, you know that class affects it as well. For women who do not have enough money, this situ- this solution is not an option. So I was afra- afraid of being returned to Saudi because um, I'm not par- paranoid because the Saudi government is very, very notorious for collaborating with men in napping their family members and forcing them to return to Saudi. Um, and you can research that too if you wish to um, verify it. But the most recent example is the um, is a story of a woman called uh, Dina Ali. Uh, she wanted to apply for asylum in, in Australia. So she traveled from Saudi. It um, was a connected flight. So she stopped in, in, in the Philippines uh, before her flight to Australia. During that time, her family kidnapped her in, in Manila. And the story is well known because just moments before her, her family came to pick her up, uh, not pick her up, kidnap her, to be uh, more accurate, uh, she used social media to, to ask for help. Uh, nobody knows what happened after. So I, th- I think um, her family knew about her movement because uh, she used her passport. Saudi government used technology to track women abroad. So when a woman crosses the borders using her passport, immediately the guardian will receive a text message telling him um, the whereabout of the woman who is under his guardianship. So in my case, I think, because I didn't have a passport, in a way it served me somehow. So when I applied uh, for refugee status in Mexico, I presented my case to the UNHCR, the United Nation High Commission for Refugees. I presented my case as, uh, you know, persecution under gender, religion, and uh, like a political persecution as well. 
because I did indeed I, I was really afraid for for my life and I had different views and, I, and I'm I'm not uh, by any means confirmed to the kind of Islam that is in Saudi Arabia I'm, I would say I'm agnostic so I, I did fear for my life um, and I was afraid of, of being returned to Saudi so I ended up uh, they accepted me not only they actually accepted me I created a new president under gender for all women who come from my background in Latin America. Yeah, and, and the rest was history. And how did, you, how did you make it from Mexico to Vancouver? I applied for like a migration uh, in a normal venue. My goal definitely was to come to Canada from the very beginning. Um, the issue with Canada, like why I didn't come to ask for refugee here, is that uh, when I researched it, there was this case in the 90s of a woman who come actually from Saudi Arabia uh, with similar circumstances, and they rejected her case, and I didn't want that to happen. So, um, yes, Canada was my destination because I wanted to talk about women and human rights, and Canada is a strong country compared to Mexico. I thought it will protect me if something happens. And, yeah, that's why I'm in Canada. What was the hardest part about leaving Saudi Arabia? Finding a way to to get out, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't have contact with your family anymore? No, there is, there is no point of contacting them. The reason is, there isn't a, um, I'm not contacting them because knowing what I know about the way they perceive the, the universe or the world order, um, what I'm doing is quite extreme for them. I mean, from being 100% covered, from not being able to move out, to doing what I'm doing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing something in the, in the perspective of women. I'm not doing something really radical. I'm just not being covered, and I'm, I'm working, and I'm moving with, living with myself, by myself, and, and, and moving, uh, you know, using SkyTrain and driving. It's not really radical, but for them, it's quite radical. They, they think that oh, I, I violated so many rules that I, I broke from, from Islam, which is the only thing that they run their lives by. So, yeah, that's, that's the reason why I'm not in touch with them. Mm-hmm. And despite the incredible repression that exists in Saudi Arabia, a women's movement still exists. I wonder if you can tell me a bit about that movement and the kinds of issues that feminists are working to address over there and, you know, what kind of successes there have been. Yeah, actually, yeah, women have been rallying since almost the the 90s for freedom of movement. Uh, Initially, they they rallied around allowing them to, to drive, uh, but then they realized that actually the core issue is the guardianship. I would say in the, like, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the women movement in, 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 in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I have to admire how they have been implementing Twitter in, in, the, in the resistance strategy. So since, the, since 2015, I think, uh, women from different backgrounds, uh, rich and poor, uh, religious and not religious, they have been 
campaigning in Twitter, and I would say also fiercely. You don't want to mess up with them. Uh, and the hashtag that they're using is I'm my own guardian. Uh, the one in Arabic is a bit confusing because what they've been doing is they use the, the number of, of days that they have been rallying. So you will see, I am my own guardian, 200, which means that 200 days passed. Right now I'm there in the 600, because 600 days passed. Um, and it's been, it's been working quite well. What I find is interesting is um, because uh, recently the, the driving ban has been lifted, which is a great victory for women there. But when that happened, few people actually gave tribute to, to the women movement in Saudi Arabia. If you look at it in the media, the, the credit was given to, to the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, whom usually is referred to as MBS, which is quite disappointing because actually it's him and his brothers and his Grandfathers are the one who are forced to bend, right? It's a monarchy. It's it's stupid to say he is the one who is liberator and reformer. And yeah, when I was when I uh, I talked to some of the women activists uh, back in Saudi who've been rallying and doing that for years, and uh, some of them they said that they received messages from from the government asking them not to talk to media about the ban or else they will risk being interrogated. And this is not my, it's not something that I'm, I wouldn't believe because it's been confirmed by more than one uh, source, including amnesty. It shows you how, how oppression works and how it functions in, in different levels. Mm-hmm. How do men respond to women who are fighting patriarchal laws and, and customs in Saudi Arabia? I think they're divided because it reflects the societal structure in general. Um, remember, they're not they're not the same. Um, some families are quite open about you know allowing women to drive, allowing them to travel. They have no issues with that, and some families are not, and they're threatened by those changes. And the issue is, for example, for for the uh, allowing them to drive. The issue with the the issue with the effectiveness, let's let's say, okay, of uh, lifting the ban, is that actually it is very superficial because it will allow women to drive definitely, but it doesn't mean that it will give them freedom of mobility because women who cannot get out, they cannot have cars, they cannot drive. It doesn't it doesn't resolve the issue with the guardianship. It's more, it's more complex for them to benefit from the lift of the drive ban. Uh, they, have to, they have to leave home. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how effective this law is going to look like. Uh, it's, it's, they will be allowed to, to um, drive sometime, I think, in, I'm not sure if it's June or July of this year. Uh, we don't know how it's going to take shape uh, eventually. Um, but again, for women who are really impacted by the freedom of mobility. By that I mean like they're not really allowed to move. This change is meaningless. It's only women who are actually driving around, who traveled abroad, who have driver license uh, somewhere around like in, in the neighboring countries and they, they already have, you know, uh, likely drivers. Yeah, they, they will benefit from it. 
women who are who are trapped. I mean, one of the issues that that Amnesty International and human rights uh, uh, organization have been demanding for years is for the government to look for the Saudi government to to resolve the situation of women who are in shelters, women who are uh, in in say in uh, prison who have already served their sentences, but. They're still in prison because they can only release if their guardian would come and pick them up. Same thing for the shelter. Uh, they, they're fleeing their abuser who is, in many instances, is their guardian, is their father, their their brother or husband. But they can only be released to that guardian. So they stay indefinitely in those houses. So they don't have freedom of mobility. How can feminists in the West support the efforts of women in Saudi Arabia to challenge these repressive laws and how can they support women's liberation in Saudi Arabia in general? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. I think it's important to connect the issues of, of women's rights in Saudi to the larger picture, which is human rights in Saudi. So let's go back again to, and look at the guardianship issue. They say it's, it is a religion, a religious space, but it's not. Um, I think it's, it draws in the structure of the natural order in Saudi, where citizens are always treated like uh, like a minor. So you cannot make decisions for yourself. There is no uh, real set laws. Uh, the judicial and executive powers are intertwined. The laws are, are arbitrary. So and it all depends on your guardian. For men, the guardian is the monarch. For women, the guardian is men in general and the monarch. And that's quite problematic because both men and women um, do not enjoy basic human rights, uh, which are granted under the Human Rights Charter, uh, which uh, Saudi Arabia is not, it's not signatory to uh, among many other not many, some, some alien countries that do not exist, like uh, the USSR and Yugoslavia. So uh, even the right to life, the right to liberty and security, uh, the right or the access to, to um, a just trial and you know not being subjected to torture, those, those are not existing in Saudi Arabia. So even if they, let's say, they, they have some women rights where they have freedom of mobility, they still... They still can be easily persecuted, right? Because many of the basic rights are usually given or stripped away if the monarch is pleased or angered. In fact, um, there has been a huge crackdown on human rights activists since last year, particularly those who have a presence in Twitter. So usually the, the government would excuse or explain it as uh, anti-cyber anti um, crime law, or counterterrorism law, and this is this is the kind of reasoning they use to justify persecuting human rights activists. How do they connect persecuting human rights activists to counterterrorism laws? That's that's the interesting thing. Yeah, we don't know. But uh, last year, the UN criticized Saudi Arabia um, because it's using it's using it as a tool to strip uh, people from their freedom of, of expression. Um, they use it in a very vague manner. To be honest, like the, the, when you think of it as uh, what is terrorism, it's, it depends on whoever you know in that position thinks what terrorism is. There's no 
clear definition to it. It's it. I think definitely, <laughs> definitely, human rights activists they do terrorize monarchy in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, it is. It is terror. I, I think there are so many ways that uh, women can support uh, the movement in Saudi Arabia. They can follow the, the Saudi uh, Human Rights News, which is available through Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, because I think this is, this is very, very important. Mostly we will hear about uh, women movement in, in the media, but, for example, women who are, uh, let's say, uh, not being allowed to drive or, like... It is important, but not, not necessarily in the core of the issue, which is, uh, as I said, human rights and freedom of mobility, because freedom of mobility is one of the most, one of the articles in the, the human uh, rights charter. Um, the other thing is to demand the Saudi government to drop the guardianship law, and it could be through uh, maybe contacting an officials, asking them to communicate with the, or tell the Saudi government to do something about it. Could be by uh, sending letters and tweets to the Saudi government on Twitter. Yeah, there's so many ways. I think the last thing is, um, if you, if anybody would like to know more about women and human rights in Saudi, they can contact me on Twitter and ask me more about it. That's all. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much again for talking with me about all this. I really appreciate it. I appreciate learning about these issues, first of all, and I appreciate your willingness to share your story and to talk about all that you've experienced. Yeah, thank you so much, Megan. I enjoyed talking to you as well. You just heard an interview with Sarah Ghazali. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.